0: We're going to wrap up our uh, sermon series this morning that you'll see on the bulletin there is titled The End. As well as the church's liturgical calendar, so we, we follow the, the the liturgical calendar here, uh, just just so far as it, it enables us to to acknowledge and rehearse the life of Christ from uh, from Christmas till uh, Second Advent uh, till He returns in glory. And so this um, this sermon series has been focused on uh, viewing the end times rightly through the the lens of the Scriptures, and we're going to return again to a, a challenging passage here in Matthew chapter twenty four. Um, to wrap up this series and the calendar year. Um, you've certainly heard and, and read uh, books and commentary and sermons on this passage before, but what I have found that is that oftentimes the verses contained here in this passage are referenced and understood far outside of the context in which they come. So it is my hope this morning, with a tremendous dose of humility, to try, it's my hope to try to bring clarity to what this passage is saying um, as much as what this passage is not saying. So I hope that's the spirit in which you um, hear what I'm getting ready to preach here in a moment for Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be on page 794 if you happen to grab one of those guest Bibles in the back. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for that Bible to be a gift from us to you. You're welcome to take it and keep it Um, and you never have to bring it back. It'll be yours forever. Please consider that a gift from us. To you. Matthew chapter 24, we're going to treat the passage in chunks throughout the sermon. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read selections from the chapter as we kind of go through the message here. And we're going to start uh, here in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 here together. It says in chapter 24 of Matthew verse 1, As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Now you'll notice perhaps in your English Bibles, if you have an NLT like I have, like I just read from here, that not only does uh, verse one begin a new chapter in the English Bible, but also at the top there's probably some kind of heading. In, in my case here it was, Jesus speaks about the future. But those breaks... Chapter, verse, and those headings, all of those things, um, they were not part of the original text. Those are things that have been added in uh, over, over, the, over the years, and they're arbitrary breaks in the text, and, and, and this is just a word of foreshadowing. Um, remember this idea later in the sermon when I say that the chapter breaks and the headings were not part of the original text, okay? We're going to come back to that here momentarily. If you ask me, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24 better fit with the end of chapter 23. You see, chapter 23 is, is the conclusion, and I believe the first two verses of 24 are the conclusion, the climax, of, of a larger section that goes all the way back to chapter 21, verse 23. It's, it's Jesus has entered into the temple, and it's a very controversial entry, and he's there and he's wrestling with, with what we'll call them official Judaism. He's in there grappling with them. It's a controversial presence. And and in that interaction, Jesus makes some pretty strong statements. Like, for example, that God has deserted their house. Now, that's a pretty controversial statement to make to the leaders of, of Judaism. He goes right in the center of their beloved temple, and he says, God has left. He's not here anymore. He has abandoned it. And with that really grand pronouncement in mind, at the end of chapter 23, we can read the beginning of chapter 24 a little bit differently. There's in the Greek a double verb construction that in verse 1 says, Jesus came out of the temple and then he went toward his disciples. That, that is as much a theological statement about what's going on in Matthew's gospel at this point than it is a geographical statement. Or a statement of where Jesus actually is. Yes, Jesus physically walked out. Okay, thank you, Matthew, for telling us the details of where they were when this conversation occurred. But in the context of what Jesus has just said to the Jewish leaders, hear the theology behind what Matthew is is telling us here in the first verse. Jesus came out of the temple and he went toward his disciples. The temple, which... We know from back in chapter 21 was this place that was meant to be a place of prayer, the presence of God, it has become as fruitless as the withered fig tree. And so now it's abandoned and ripe for destruction. And that is what is on the disciples' minds in verse 3, where we're coming to next, as they've left the temple and they've arrived on the Mount of Olives and says, Jesus sits down and they come to him with some questions. And this answer, well, I should say this double answer to what is a double question, not only sets up the fourth and final of Matthew's great discourses in his gospel, but it also, the, the, the questions help us to understand the answers. You, you can't understand Matthew chapter 24 Amidst all of the symbolism in there, and the prophetic types of language that you find there, all the things that are kind of head scratching on the surface, you can't understand how Jesus answers unless you first look at how the questions are asked. And there's a twofold question there in verse three. Look at look at how the disciples speak to Jesus. As later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, "This tell us when will all this happen?" Okay, so they're responding to Jesus's. You know, declaration that the temple will be destroyed. When will all this happen? And then what sign will signal your return at the end of the world? It's interesting how they put those two things together, isn't it? You know, it's interesting that to this point in Matthew, there's no indication that Jesus has before this moment said anything to his disciples in such categories concerning the future. There's, there's, in Matthew, there's no indication that Jesus has talked about a, some sort of return and the end of the world order and, and connecting that with major you know, cataclysmic destruction. But in his disciples' minds, they've connected dots. They, they say, well, something as you know, cataclysmic as the, the destruction of the temple must be associated with the establishment of a new world order. There must be something about our, our Messiah King, that is associated with something as horrific and devastating and cataclysmic as as this. And so they're connecting the dots in the head. But listen, we need to hear Jesus' actual response to them just as much as they needed to hear Jesus' actual response to them. It's amazing to me how often in our context, in 21st century American Christianity, Protestant Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity, there's very specific demographic here that I'm referring to here. It's amazing to me how often Christian teachers and preachers appeal to the various things here in this chapter, and, and, they, and they do it to try to work out some sort of pattern by which they might be able to predict the future. If I can just work out what Jesus is saying here, I can then, with, with great accuracy, get some sense of the sequence of things as they're coming towards us from the, you know, in the future, as we hurdle towards the future. But the thing is, when we look at how Jesus talks about these things and what he actually says, he he says things in such a way as to discourage such speculation. It's as if we've taken these things that Jesus intended to discourage the very behavior that we are then guilty of once we we read them, well, I would say oftentimes wrongly. Take, for example, verses 4 through 8. Look at verses 4 through 8 here. Look what Jesus actually says. Jesus told them, again, in response to their association with the destruction of the temple to the end of the world, essentially. He says this, Don't don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Do you hear that? The end won't follow immediately. You might think, when the temple's destroyed, that the end is happening or that it's about to happen. Jesus says, no, these things have to take place, but the end won't happen immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all of this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. Each generation has its own political and natural disasters, and each generation is tempted to think that its own experiences are somehow worse and of more ultimate significance than those of previous generations. But what Jesus is saying here is that terrible things don't mark the end of the world. Terrible things mark this age of the world. It's the world that we live in. It's the world that the church has lived in for 2,000 years. A a, a world that is broken with nations raging against nations and kingdoms toppling and, and great geological things happening and things happening in the heavens. It is, a, is it a crazy world. It is an evil world. The times are dark. This is the age that you are living in, church. And just because something bad happened today doesn't mean necessarily that it's a sign that Jesus is coming tomorrow. That's what he's trying to tell them. Hear what he's saying. Terrible things don't mark the end of the world. They mark this age of the world. They don't signal necessarily his imminent return. They describe the world until his return. And knowing how his disciples are thinking, revealed by their question, Jesus wants to discourage them from the onset in their association of major disasters with the end of the world. And nothing in their minds would have been a a greater disaster than the temple being destroyed. And so right here from the beginning, as we even dare take another step in Matthew chapter, t- chapter 24, we have to take cues from Jesus and, and avoid, as 21st century Christians, convinced that our time is truly the end time. I bet if I took a poll in here, the vast majority, if not everyone in here, would say we are absolutely living in the end times. And listen, if every generation of the church for 2,000 years were taking a poll, they would think the same thing, okay? So we need to listen to the Lord and avoid misreading the times. We need to stop trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, and maybe start reading our Bibles instead. Yes, the world is in upheaval. Yes, there are wars and disasters, etc. But they do not necessarily mean anything other than the fact that the world is broken. The world is in need of restoration. They point to the fact that, yes, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Thank you, Pastor Richard, for the way that you prayed, and Pastor Jeff, for the way that you set us up to think about the kingdom of God, yes, next week we will begin to acknowledge that in Christ, the kingdom of God has come to earth. It has been inaugurated in the Son of God, but it awaits consummation. Jesus' words, therefore, help us to not necessarily predict the future. That's not the point. It is not to predict the future. It is to anticipate And long for the future. The world, Jesus is telling us, is broken and I will come to restore it. That is the longing cry of the heart of the Christian. It's not to speculate. It is not to read the tea leaves or the signs. It is to be prepared and ready and eager for the return of our King. You and I need to be very wary of anyone who claims otherwise. No matter how trusted of an authority they are on the topic. No matter how many books they sell or magazines they sell or how convincing their timetables or formulas may be. You have to resist the tempt. There's this temptation. And I've been, I've been prey to it myself. I've given in to the, the allure of, of, oh, according to this, this means that. Don't fall prey to that. That's not the purpose of prophecy. It is not for you to work out your timetables and have a, a sense of when things are going to happen. It is that you are prepared for when they do. And you and I are a generation that is so convinced that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And by the way, he might. He could. He'd come back before I'm done preaching this message. But it's not for you to know when. It's for you to be ready for when. Now, after Jesus begins to address on, from the very get-go here their association with you know, major cataclysmic disasters with the end of the world, he's then going to go in and begin to answer their twofold question one at a time. So the, the first answer to the first question dominates the focus of his teaching for the next 27 verses. Jesus is going to begin to respond to the question about when will these things happen? That is, when will, this, when will the temple be destroyed? When is this going to happen when this you know, cataclysmic thing takes place? And Jesus' answer can be summarized in verse 34. He says, this generation, here's the answer to the time frame. Jesus does give them an answer to that question. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. In other words, it'll happen. <laughs> Sorry to tell you guys, it's going to happen in your lifetime. Within this generation, when I say that every stone that you see here will be reduced to rubble, this will happen in your lifetime. Now, we know on this side of history that the siege of Jerusalem was a particularly horrific event. It lasted about four years because the city, even for a power as mighty as Rome, the city was hard to conquer. It's very hard to take Jerusalem. And the Romans essentially uh, starved its inhabitants into submission. It kind of reminds me, um, for, the, for you Civil War uh, historians here, it kind of reminds me of the siege of Vicksburg. You remember the Siege of Vicksburg. It was considered the turning point in the Civil War. It was when the Union forces, uh, when they finally claimed uh, Vicksburg there on the Mississippi River, they finally had control of the entire Mississippi River. And it turned, it cut the, the Confederacy in half, and it, it cut off the supply chain, and it was, it was really, that was a turning point in the war. And my, my lovely wife is from not that far from that area, and we had the opportunity a number of years ago to take a, a trip to Vicksburg, and we looked at the antebellum homes down there, and we um, we toured the battlefield. There's a, you actually do a driving tour. You don't, have, you don't have to get out of your car. It's like the best kind of tour ever, right? You just sit in your car with the air conditioning blowing. And listen, if you go anytime between February or November in Mississippi, you'll need your air conditioner blowing, okay? Because it's always hot down there. We, I live there forever, and my wife is from there, so I know what I'm talking about. It is, it is miserably hot. But Vicksburg is, is a lovely place to visit. And if you know anything about the Battle of Vicksburg, you, you'll know that they the Union forces could not take Vicksburg. They had to basically cut Vicksburg off from any outside supplies to the point where no one had anything to eat. They, they were starved. People were eating their shoes, essentially, to survive. And so that's kind of like what was going on here in Jerusalem. But we know from, from this side of history, from the accounts that come out of the siege of Jerusalem, that that was a far worse situation than whatever took place in Vicksburg. The stories that come out of there reveal unparalleled affliction and misery, just as Jesus predicted back in verse 21 when he said there will be greater anguish than any time since the world began. This will happen in your lifetimes, guys. And in AD 70, the city was stormed. The temple, the greatest architectural masterpiece of its time, was reduced to rubble. A million Jewish people perished. And the historian Josephus, who was alive and present in those days, reports that another 100,000 were taken captive a horrible situation that happened in history but i wonder i wonder as we're trying to be not just students of history want to be students of the scriptures and i wonder as we come to this this interaction between jesus and his disciples why did jesus even bother to predict or prophesy that this would happen in the first place he didn't have to say anything about it they'd been in the temple he'd had his interactions he, he had made his statement, and he had left. And it was his disciples, as they were leaving, who were sort of remarking at the, the architectural wonder of the temple grounds. And Jesus could have just let them remain fascinated with what they were seeing. He didn't have to say anything about their, them being reduced to rubble, but, and yet he did. And so the question is, why did he say it in the first place? And it's here why I beg you, again, to remember the context. What have we just come out of? We came out of an interaction with official Judaism where Jesus talks about God's judgment on the disbelief of his people resulting in his desertion from the temple. Jesus came out and went toward his disciples. It's a, this emphatic statement that God's presence is moving from, from some physical structure and it's moving to a the spiritual structure of his church. But I also think Jesus wants his disciples, and here's, here's the, the, the connection point for us here this morning. I think Jesus wants his disciples, as well as the rest of us and all of his disciples in this present age, to see the coming of the Roman commander Titus upon Jerusalem as something like a miniature of the coming of Christ in judgment at the end of human history. Not so you and I can have a carefully worked out sequence of events, but so that we can be prepared for when that time comes. As Carl so faithfully proclaimed from Second Peter 3 last week, where Peter says, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, think of the siege of Jerusalem as, as a, a foretaste, a foreshadow, a, a miniature, a caricature, whatever you want to call it, of Christ's return at the end of the age. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live? In other words, in light of that time, how should you be living your lives today? How should you live your life today? While you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. I believe the point of Jesus' prophecy is that the fall of Jerusalem anticipates, it's a microcosm, the end of the world. And so just as his disciples then could expect these events to happen in their lifetime, so too must all generations of believers expect the end to come in theirs. I don't hold it against you that you think you're living in the end times. Just like I don't hold it against the church in the 18th century or the 15th century or the turn of the millennium or the people in Jesus' own day every New Testament writer was convinced they were living in the last days. And so can we. Do not be mistaken. Christ is coming back. Now, his first coming was an obscure and private affair. But his second coming will be radically different. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, nursing at Mary's breast, to the lowing of the cattle, the Son of Man, returning on the clouds in glory and in judgment. Verse 27, for as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. The second coming of Christ is as certain of an event as ever foretold. If you think Jesus' predictions of the fall of Jerusalem proved to be true, just wait until his... Predictions of his second coming proved to be true. History is God's story. It's not man's story. It's not the story of, of the victor. That's often the, 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 the way that history is presented, right? History is not about truth. It's not about facts. It's about narratives. Whoever wins the battle gets to determine the history. Well, that may, that may be true or may not be true in the course of, 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 of history as we understand it, but in the end of t- in, at the end, History will be proven to be God's story. He's the one who creates history. He's the one who enters into history. He's the one who's bringing history to a conclusion. The world is not going to end because the sun goes supernova or it burns out and all the plants die. It's not going to end because of nuclear holocaust and we all blow each other up. It's not gonna end because of global warming and melting ice caps and some sort of environmental disaster. The world is not going to end in those ways because it will end when God says it will end and he is patient, and he is long-suffering, and he withholds the end because he wants people to be saved. But when he says the time is up, the time will be up. As C.S. Lewis says, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over, and you will know it. Just like if you go to a play, and it comes to a conclusion, and the writer comes on the stage, and everyone stands and applause, you will know the end has come when Christ steps foot on this earth again and all the nations will see him. I don't know how physically that's going to work, but I believe it will. And when the author steps on the stage, the play is over. And Jesus is going to return, not to suffer, but to reign. And his coming, listen, this is the, 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 the connection point for your heart and for my heart this morning, his coming will settle the final and eternal destiny of every person every single person and listen friends that is the concern of matthew in this in his in this narrative in his gospel it's not some detailed millennial expectation That's not the point of prophecy. Prophecy is not intended to give us a strict, definable chronology of events nor a detailed picture of the future. No, the purpose of prophecy and the purpose of what Matthew is doing in sharing these words of Jesus is to lift our hearts to expectancy. We long for this to happen. We we eagerly anticipate this to happen and we make ourselves ready for it to happen. Now about that time, There are two parts to the question, weren't there? When will these events take place, Jesus? When will the temple be reduced to rubble? Well, in your lifetimes. (laughs) And all these things I'm telling you are are indicators of things that will have to happen before then, things that will happen around then, and, and it'll be a time of confusion, but here's what's coming. But about that time. What about that time? Part two of the question Here's part two of the answer. In verse 36, he goes from referring to those days, meaning those days of the temple being destroyed, to that day and hour in verse 36. That day and hour, no matter how much the disciples want to know and no matter how much we're tempted to connect events of the world with that day and hour, Jesus says that day and hour is only known to God the Father, The language is very clear in the original language. Now, it's, it's, it's softened, I think, in, our, in many of our English translations. I think even in the NLT. It's right there on the screen. The, the word, however, is not strong enough for us to see and clearly detect the shift from his answer to the first question to his answer to the second. Something a little bit is lost in the however. But in the Greek, it's, it's very evident Jesus has been answering a question about those days, and now he says literally, but about that time. That other time you're asking me about. That singular day and hour, no one knows when that will be. No one. Not any disciple. Not any apostle. Not any preacher. Not any best-selling author. No magazine publisher. Nobody, not even the Son of Man himself. Now I, I'm theologically embaffled by that statement. And I was talking, I think it was with Janet Sandine last week. Was that you, Janet? We're, yeah. I'm not even sure what to do with that. But I don't think he's lying. I mean, somewhere in the interpersonal relationship of the of the triune God, something here, Jesus is telling us something here. He, he, it's the Father's decision. And Jesus is saying, he hasn't told me when. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Maybe you know what to do with that. But the point is, concern, not those days, I've told you they're going to happen in your lifetime, but that hour and day, no one knows. No one knows. So what's the priority then for his disciples? well, It's not to speculate, but to be watchful and to prepare. And he's going to spell out what that means over a course of parables that take another two chapters to spell out. So he's answered the first part of the question. Now he's going to take time to give them an idea of how they are, what's their attitude supposed to be in light of his answer to the second question. And the great lesson from these parables is this. To assume delay, meaning I've got time. (laughs) I've got time. It's like the, the kid that's at home when the parents are away and they're doing the naughty thing. Mom and dad aren't coming back for a good hour at least. I'm good. I've got an hour. I've got time. Listen, the point of the parables is assuming delay will result in postponing readiness, which is to invite disaster. Do you feel the tension in in Jesus' two answers? Stop thinking that every major thing that happens is the signal that the world is ending. By the way, I could come back at any time. You better be ready. (laughs) In other words... How God's people live today will be the key to their fate at the end. An end which will be both sudden and unexpected. Up until that moment, it will be business as usual. But when that moment comes, all shops close. No more chances to repent. No more chances to decide. No more, you know, last minute sort of turning over a new leaf. I'm going to get it right today. I'm going to finally do the thing that I've been putting off. No. Jesus says, so i got to turn my page here because I got, I'm behind in my, my Bible. In verse 37, as Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, by the way, no one knows when he's returning. But the next verse, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. People going about their everyday lives, living as if they had all the time in the world, oblivious to the fact that they were on the cusp of judgment. And that, friends, is the context and the meaning of the next two verses that follow. He says, in the very next verse, two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Listen, I hope you can hear me and the humility in which I say these things, but these two verses are not talking about a rapture where Christ secretly comes and whisks his church out of the world before things get bad. That interpretation of these verses cannot be found anywhere in all of church history for 1,800 years. It is a new concept. In fact, let me give you a little brief history on where rapture theology even came from. Somewhere around 1820 and Glasgow, Scotland, there was a teenage girl named McDonald who was at a, a revival service, and she claimed there to have had a vision of a pre-tribulation rapture. And, and this moment would have come and gone and left little impact on the church, except a certain reverend named John Nelson Darby was there. He was one of the founders of the, of the Plymouth Brethren, and he was there, and he listened to what she said, and he became convinced it was correct and began preaching it. Now, even so, the, this, this very nuanced, particular, novel idea probably would have been a flash in the pan and disappeared from the annals of history, except Darby came across the Atlantic, and he came in contact with the Billy Graham of his day, none other than one Dwight L. Moody. And you all know Moody's name, I'm sure. A great preacher, a great man of God. A, I mean, can't say enough great things about D.L. Moody, but Moody ended up becoming the worldwide disseminator of what is called dispensationalism, and a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, to further popularize this idea, there was another man named C.I. Schofield. You've probably heard of C.I. Schofield. He was at the turn of the 20th century, and he had a, a reference Bible that he created where he put, here it is, headings in the text and notes at the bottom. Now, a lot of us here have study Bibles. I'm not gonna have you raise your hand. Study Bibles are fine, but listen to me. Please listen to me. The notes at the bottom are not inspired scripture. They are not inspired scripture. They are a person's commentary on the scripture. The headings at the top of a chapter are not inspired scripture. They are a translation team's attempt to divide the passages up in chunks that you, can, you and I have, can better understand. It, they're meant to be an aid, but they are not inspired and Schofield took this theology and he produced a widely popular Bible that had captions like, Jesus predicts the rapture in the text. And the common person who picks up their Bible and is, they're, they're amazed that they finally have a Bible that, has, that gives them aids to understanding it. And it's a wonderful thing. But suddenly what's in the text as a section heading becomes the text. Oh, Jesus predicts the rapture. There must be a rapture. And so Schofield popularized this very new theology that had essentially no support for the first 18 plus centuries of the church. And Schofield's Bible is the reason dispensationalism can be found in American fundamentalism in the 20th century and in many of our churches today. Now, I'm not assigning value one way or the other to this. I'm giving you a history lesson. (laughs) I'm telling you where this all came from. And, and I would even go as far to say that a plurality at least, and maybe a majority, I could be wrong, and if I don't have my finger on the pulse, then I will, you know, I'll apologize later. But I might be wrong, but I would, I would venture to say that many of us take our cues for how we understand the end times, not even from the scriptures, and not even from a reference Bible, but probably from a, a Christian fiction novel. I, I'm sure a lot of us here read books like, the Left Behind series and other books like that. And we, we read these books and we become convinced that this is exactly how things are going to happen. But listen, the reason I'm mentioning this is because verse, verses 40 and 41 of Matthew 24 are often one of the key proof texts for supporting this theology. And I just want to tell you right now, I'm having a hard time seeing how verses 40 and 41 have anything in the world to do with a pre-tribulation rapture. I don't see it. Context matters, church. What is he talking about when he's talking about the unbelieving? He's not talking about unbelieving workers in a field or at a mill. That's not what he's talking about. But what's the context? The context is what happened in Noah's day. Jesus is retelling the Noah story. When all of humanity is swept away by the flood and judgment, and the only ones left behind were whom? Noah and his family. The righteous were left behind. In that context, it's good to be left behind. You want to be left behind. When Christ returns, he's coming in judgment, and you do not want to be taken away in judgment when that happens. You want to be here. You want to be left. You want to remain. In Noah's story and in Matthew, it's good to be left behind, for to be taken away is to be taken away in judgment. Why does it matter, Pastor Sean? Why are you going to such lengths to give the history and, and, and speak so passionately about this? Well, first of all, we need to hear and listen to what the Bible actually says. I have to, we have to hear the scriptures speak. What are they saying? What is Jesus saying? I want to know what he's saying here. I want to know why. I want to know what it means for my life and for your life. And I don't see Jesus making some sort of promise that we'll be able to know when it's going to happen and we don't have to worry about when it happens because somehow he's going to come and whisk us away before things get bad and then things are going to happen. No, Jesus wants his church that's in the world to watch and wait and be prepared in the world. Look at the next verse. It's all one continuous thought. It's not, let's, we're not going to take little things out of context to suit our theological needs. We're looking at the text as it's coming. You don't know the day and the hour. It'll be like the time when Noah had the flood. People will be swept away in judgment. Therefore, what? What's the next thing he says in verse 42? So you too must watch. You too must keep watch for you don't know when the day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Be faithful. By the way, every time there's some sort of astronomical event and people start saying it means the end of the world, I can be guaranteed it doesn't mean the end of the world. Because Jesus says it's when we least expect it. A faithful, verse 45, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. But I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. Sounds like the saints reigning with Christ for eternity. But what if the, what if the servant is evil and thinks my master won't be back for a while? And he begins beating the other servants and partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, concerning the second coming, C.S. Lewis said this. This time, It will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will either strike irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it. Or leave it. That's the message of Matthew 24 concerning the end. That this world is broken and in need of renewal. That the kingdom of God has come, but it is not yet consummated. The sure and coming destruction of the temple and the disciples' lives then, as cataclysmic of an an event as that may be, does not mean the end of the world has come, nor do any of the other natural or geopolitical calamities that mark the age in which we live, but it is a preview. It is a preview of the coming judgment of God, not just on one unbelieving nation, mind you, but upon an unbelieving world. His return is both delayed and imminent. <laughs> and if you don't like that tension, well, find another religion. Because that's the one we have. It's delayed. He's delaying. He wants no one to perish. He wants all to be saved. He's a good and patient God. I thank God that he's been patient with me. I think back to some of the worst things that I've been guilty of in my life and I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't come back then. That he's given me time to make things right. He's giving you time. You're here today because of the, the benevolence, the patience, and the love of God. Every second is a gift. And Jesus would implore you to use it Wisely. Because though his return has been delayed and it is delayed, it is also imminent. In the very next breath, it's closer than you think. You can never know, but you know it's coming. He's not going to whisk his church away from the hard times, but he promises to be with the church throughout all the times. I will never leave you, Jesus said, until the end of the age I will be here. When two of you are gathered in my name, I'm present. He's present in this room right now. You don't see him, but in your hearts you know he's present. He's present, walking. He he passes among the the lampstands. He walks among the lampstands. He walks among the church. He's here now. He's ministering now. He's speaking now. He's inviting you. He's standing at the door knocking. He's, He's beckoning you to let him into your heart. This is the day of salvation that scriptures say, not tomorrow. You're not given tomorrow, you're given today. Say yes today. That's why we have the scriptures, that's why we have prophecy, that's why we have predictions, that's why we have certainty of judgment, because he's patient that you would say yes to him now while you have time. Quit putting it off until tomorrow He's not going to leave his church in the hard times. He's with his church in the hard times. And so you and I can anticipate and long for and eagerly await the fulfillment of his promises to return and to make all things new. Jesus is present with us today and he's coming to make right every wrong, perhaps tomorrow and until that day and hour which nobody knows, he commands us to fix our eyes in the future in such a way that it impacts every moment of life in the present. In the words of J.D. Walt, apocalyptic anxiety may sell books and blockbuster movie tickets, but eschatological hope steals faith and emboldens holy love. Oh, I love that. Eschatological expectation steals faith, makes it strong, shores it up, and emboldens holy love. What you and I are to be and do in this world until he returns, that is the point. So church, hear and trust the word. Listen to what it's saying, not to what it's not saying. Hear the word, trust the word, and live the kinds of lives exhorted by the word until he returns or until he calls us home, whichever comes first. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, um, that your patience has not only meant time for people, but it reveals your heart. It reveals your deep longing not to sweep the world away in judgment, but to draw people to yourself. Even the worst of us. The ones with the darkest, coldest, most bitter, dare I say, most evil heart. Even us. You desire to lift up your son and draw people to him. Jesus, I pray that somewhere in the midst of this very challenging sermon for me to preach, one of the hardest I've ever prepared for, ever, one of the hardest ever to preach in my life. I thank you that, that you've enabled this to take place, but I pray that in the midst of it, somehow you have been lifted up. That we would look to you, not to our timeframes, not to the newspapers, not to the, the so-called authorities. Lord, we look to you you are the one we long for. You are the one we need. You are the one our hearts are captivated by. And if we're not, Lord, would you do a work in our hearts where we are? I pray, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's been putting, doing the right thing off and they think they've got more time or they other things are more important, Lord, may they see that time is not promised and there's nothing more important than getting things right with you today. Lord, may today be the day of salvation for somebody here this morning. May they have the courage and the faith to step out of their worldview or their comfort zone or their denial or their skepticism or their rebellion and give their hearts to you this morning. Lord, may they have the courage perhaps even to step forward and kneel at one of these places here which would be an indicator that they want someone to pray with them. And I I know there's all manner of people here that would love to come and pray with them, present company included. Lord, by your Spirit's presence and power and guiding, would you facilitate all that is to take place in the moments to come. As we stand here in a moment and sing and respond to this proclamation of your word and to the series and to this day on the church calendar, Lord, may your lordship be what is the focal point for the remainder of our moments here. You are the king and we are your servants. We belong to you. We submit ourselves to you. We want you to come reign in my heart. Come reign in our hearts for your glory and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.